Welcome to Prospect Lives, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a family of regular prospect writers filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in November. Sporting life Emma John was nursing her first injury while Serena Smith was explaining the vaping phenomenon amongst young people. Farmer Tom was giving some unusual investment advice, while Alice Goodman was cautioning about the danger of becoming too, quotes, parochial. This month, Jason Thomas Vanillier looks forward to Christmas, despite 2022 having been a difficult year for, quotes, persons seeking asylum. While Sheila Hancock asks whether we have all become too emotional. And Mike Braley reminisces on his interactions with the late Queen Elizabeth II. But first of all, let's hear from Farmer Tom, who attended a rather special event based at Althrup House, Diana's childhood home. How can you tell if a sheep is zinc deficient just by looking at it? This question brought a room of 150 people to stunned silence. Many were farmers that I hugely admire for their knowledge of our natural environment and passion for sustainable food. But none of us could answer the question. I was attending a conference at Oldthorpe House, the magnificent country home of the Earl and Countess Spencer, and the childhood home of the late Princess Diana. Walking down corridors trodden by Nelson Mandela, Winston Churchill and royalty throughout the centuries, myself and my fellow Gareth's, readers of my previous columns will know exactly who I mean, were warmly welcomed by Countess Spencer, introduced informally as Karen. She encouraged us to make full use of every room, from the picture gallery lined with stunning paintings to one of her favourites, the library, which holds 10,000 books. And we didn't need asking twice. We explored the Marlborough Room, which has a table seating 42 people, the billiard room and the great dining room. I've never studied in more beautiful surroundings, but far from being a glitzy affair, we spent two days getting deep down and dirty in the world of soil on a course that took me to new levels of geekery. We were led by Nicole Masters, a confident and supremely knowledgeable Kiwi who is, in my opinion, the world expert on agricultural soils. She had flown in from Montana to address us at Oldthorpe, a perfect setting for her since she's farming royalty. For those readers who would struggle to fill the back of a postage stamp with their knowledge of soil, let me tell you, there is a huge, exciting world beneath our feet, with a hectare, which is 10,000 square metres of soil, containing an average of 1,000 kilograms of earthworms, 1,700 kilograms of bacteria, and 2,700 kilograms of fungi. During our stay, we were immersed in ecological holobionts and humates, learning about everything from potassium to protozoa, cows to compost tea, microbes to mycorrhizae, weeds and worms. A key theme of our lessons was the importance of manure, because a healthy soil ecosystem is dependent on dung from herbivores. That's cows, sheep, deer and hares. My biology teacher at school was, it seems, correct when he said, There are two key factors in biology. One is poo and the other is reproduction. Thanks, Mr. Earl. We discovered that plants themselves are not vegan, emitting a liquid from their roots to explode microbe bodies before absorbing their nutrients. And we learned why our joints creak when we stand up sometimes, a boron deficiency. Science is amazing. And so is nature and soil and the whole environment around us. And I wish our politicians could see soil as farmers do. I wish those pushing factory foods could understand the benefits to the planet and ourselves from soil health. 
I wish all of them could visit a farm run by people who understand what it takes to produce food regeneratively rather than in ways that degenerate our most precious resource. There is no substitute for getting down to ground level, running your fingers through that gorgeous chocolate cake-like humus and filling your lungs with petrichor. I hunger for a world where decisions are made by those who understand the workings of the complex underground ecosystem rather than those only hungry for re-election and who are tired of experts. I'm also saddened that the national narrative casts the cow as the enemy of the climate. I feel that cows should continue to play a part in the ecosystem of our richest soils, which are highly effective in removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. I'm concerned that much of the population think that farmers adversely impact the environment. Spoiler alert, we did unknowingly in the past, but we were instructed to do so by successive governments to keep your grandparents alive. As a farmer of today, I know that in rebuilding our soils, we rebuild the nation and rescue the planet. Oh, and apparently, prepare to be amazed. For many breeds, you can tell if a sheep is zinc deficient if its white wool grows slower than its black wool. Former England cricket captain Mike Brealey also reminisces in his column about visits to the royal residences. For 70 years, the Queen visited Lords as patron of Marlebone Cricket Club. She'd come before her coronation as well, accompanying her parents and sister. I'm sure it wasn't at the top of her list of public engagements, but I guess it wasn't at the bottom either. I recall her presence in the committee room during the test match against Pakistan in 1978 after I'd presented the team to her around tea time. She carried out her task with grace, as usual. I felt that her enthusiasm blossomed when the topic of horses came up. In the months following her death, I'd been remembering my impressions of the few times I was introduced to her. As one of her subjects and temporarily courtiers, my main feeling was of awkwardness. Was I going to embarrass myself somehow? Might I suddenly have a blank and forget the name of one of my teammates when introducing them to her? Might I call for three cheers with insufficient bravura or break some rule of etiquette? Here's one allowed to raise a topic with the Queen. Not everyone becomes tongue-tied. Notoriously, Dennis Lilly asked the Queen for her signature when introduced to her on the field during the centenary test in Melbourne. I believe she gave it to him, but not there and then. But I certainly did. We all have fantasies of being king or queen. Freud referred to the infant as His Majesty the Baby, with its sense of entitlement to adoration and instant gratification. But being born to royalty seems to me a hard hung to be dealt. Freud also pointed out that untouchability applies not only to the lowest of the low, as to Dalits beneath the Indian caste system, but also to the highest. Touching the monarch might imply not only adoration, but too much intimacy, evil, regicidal intent. The formality and hesitation of the general public makes spontaneity hard to achieve. I was privileged to be invited to lunch at Buckingham Palace 
during that same summer of 1978, I remember a story told by the Queen. She was being driven back to London through Brixton on a Sunday afternoon. This was before the days when shops would be open for seven days a week. Cora stopped for a moment, and she noticed people window shopping. She wondered what it was like for them. I saw again how two groups of people were looking through glass into a tantalising world, cut off from whatever was inside, observers rather than participants. A whole paraphernalia of royalty must, I reflected, feel to her at times like being in a golden cave. Prime ministers, too, must feel lonely in their high office. One evening during the war, when being driven to Chartwell, Winston Churchill noticed a long queue in the street. He told the driver to stop. He wanted to find out what people were standing in line for. A stock of birdseed had arrived at a local shop. They were queuing to buy food for their budgerigars. Back inside his car, Churchill wept, presumably touched by the persistence of ordinary life through the immense hardships of bombardment and war. To my mind, the most striking gesture in sport made by a head of state during my lifetime was Nelson Mandela's wearing of a Springbok rugby shirt, a widely hated symbol of apartheid, to South Africa's World Cup final win in 1995. He even asked Springbok captain Francois Pinard for permission to wear the replica of his number six jersey, which he took out of a shopping bag in the dressing room shortly before play began. As captain of England, I had a tiny taste of this kind of attention and the mixed feelings aroused in people towards a national representative. Shortly before my first test in this role in 1977, I was shopping in a run-down high street in South London, not far from New Cross, where there'd been brewing tensions with the National Front. A man who, I guessed from his accent, had been raised in the Caribbean, came up to me and addressed me with affection as my captain. I was touched to be part of his life. Of course, respect and affection easily shift into antagonism and suspicion. People felt I'd let them down personally by failing to score runs or to lead the side to victory. A woman once pushed me into a rose bed at Burton-upon-Trent. She was an irate Middlesex supporter. And the kind woman who helped me deal with my mail 45 years ago told me she didn't show me the most abusive letters. Those who have become figures that, by virtue of their roles, carry complex and powerful meanings for many people, even the projections of a nation, usually manage to convey something real about themselves one way or another. The duties of the monarch are specific and all-consuming. The queen carried hers out in her own way, performing a difficult task with dignity. I was impressed to hear from Ted Hughes that before honouring him in some way as poet laureate, 
She'd read many of his poems, had taken them in, and was interested in them. I find that touching, too. The nation's affection for the Queen was a token of how conscientious she was. But as Freud also said, when some of his patients fell in love with him, he had to learn that this was not due to his own extraordinary qualities of personality. The love and hate towards the psychoanalyst is partly related to what we symbolize and represent to each individual. Another psychoanalyst, Ronald Fairbairn, noted the profound impact on all his patients of King George V's death and by implication the impact he had as monarch when he was alive. Whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, we're all suffused with fantasies about the parent of the country, this figure drenched with aspects of what our own parents meant to us, especially when we were small. We're in awe, in love and in hate with these kings and queens. We invest them, the representatives of our parents, with our own templates. It can't be easy for any actual monarch to carry such an omnipresent burden, as Charles will have begun to find out. While Mike highlights the constraints that come with being a national symbol, Anglican priest Alice Goodman also reflects on the challenges presented by archaic institutional rules. I am so deeply in debt to Roxanne Kindersley and her paint box that I'm going to be baking cookies for her until kingdom come. This is the story. There was once a time in the life of the Church of England when priests got to say no to many things. A priest might refuse to baptize your child by the name you had chosen. If it was a contraction like Billy or a diminutive like Minnie, he might suggest that William or Mary was what you wanted. When I was curate in Kidderminster, there was a woman who enjoyed ringing round the churches to ask whether we'd baptize her baby, Pagan. Someone finally shut her up by saying, yes, of course, after St. Paganus, I presume. The vicar would also get to tell people what kinds of music and readings they could have at weddings and funerals. This may still be the case in cathedrals, and the grander churches. But in the kind of village church where I'm priest, we've learned it's a bad idea. People can now take their weddings, their funerals, and their babies elsewhere and find the love of God and the comfort of their friends outside the church. More importantly, it's hard to find theological justification for it. We should be able to find God in the songs and readings that move the people of our parishes. Tastefulness is not next to godliness. It is, however, one of the guiding principles in the matter of churchyard regulations. Nobody seems able to tell me when the task of approving monuments and churches was delegated to local priests. Permissions seem to have been needed by the mid-1800s. But from whom? The Chancellor of the Diocese, I suppose. If you were wealthy and well-connected enough to want a monument, you would know who to write to, and your obelisk, angel, or rugged cross would be approved. Nowadays, a year doesn't go by without churchyard regulations, 
or at least their rigid interpretation, causing grief, ridicule, and headlines. Here in my benefice, in Great Wilbraham, there is the gravestone of a boy who was killed in a road accident. According to the version of the story I was first told, the boy's family wanted a pheasant engraved on it, but the vicar at the time interpreted the rules to mean that only creatures specifically mentioned in Holy Scripture could appear on churchyard monuments. You can have a quail, the vicar said, since there are no pheasants in the Bible. Someone told me later, actually what they wanted was a bunny. Even worse, at least pheasants and quail are both game birds. Bearing these things in mind, along with the toys on a baby's grave to which we turn a blind eye, I gave permission last year for Charlie T's daughters to have the robin redbreast on Charlie's monument painted so that it would be obvious that it wasn't a hedge sparrow. Then six months later, waiting outside the church for another funeral to begin, Somebody tapped me on the shoulder. I've got a bone to pick with you, vicar, said Peter L. You let Charlie T's girls have color on his stone, but you said no when I asked for Rita's flowers to be painted. This is the kind of thing we all dread. The precedent, the thin end of the wedge. Let them have a painted robin, and before you know, it'll be a black marble teddy bear, or worse. I'm sorry, I said, those are the regulations, but I've changed my mind about how to interpret them. And besides, we'll be underwater here in 50 years. My, you're cheerful, he said. What color did you want the flowers to be? I asked. Yellow, he responded. Yellow freesias, her favorite. So I told Roxanne Kindersley about Rita, who was a daughter of the village a dinner lady at our school, sat with sick people and loved little black dresses, a cardian lime, and putting off the diet until tomorrow. One day, late in 2022, when the weather was still unseasonably pleasant, Roxanne came to the churchyard with her tools and painted the freesias sandblasted on Rita's stone. It took three hours, green for the stem and the leaves, green buds tipped with yellow, yellow flowers veined with orange and white. There's nothing more beautiful in the churchyard. While Alice celebrates the kindness of people in her parish, Sarah Collins, an assistant editor at Prospect who has obsessive compulsive disorder, reflects on how a local cafe was important in her recovery. When my thoughts become unbearable, my feet carry me to a cafe on the corner of a South London street next to the one that I used to live on. It's not a particularly charming cafe. In another life it would be depressing, a branch of a multinational chain that lightly displaced an independent shop. But it is my haven. I suspect that I am not the only patron with an official diagnosis from the seminal DSM-5 Manual of Mental Disorders. There is a man who hands out remarkable poems and religious texts he has composed. There is a woman who sits all day on the bench outside, getting up only to collect little pieces of rubbish from the pavement. There is a man who is rough sleeping, who pops in every now and then for some water in a paper cup. 
And there are various other characters who behave in ways that don't fit into the rigid confines of normal. None of this seems to faze the staff. They subtly create an atmosphere of unconditional acceptance, something mental health professionals often fail to maintain, despite it being fundamental to their training. Just over two years ago, when my obsessive compulsive disorder was at its most severe, I became consumed with the idea that I was inherently a malevolent presence on earth. It felt wrong to feed this presence, so I stopped eating. It felt logical at that time to spend hours each day pondering the most effective ways to rid the earth of this presence. I was referred to a crisis cafe run by the NHS, where I could go should it all get too much. NHS crisis cafes are a wonderful idea, but I realised that I didn't need one. I already had a crisis cafe just down the road. When my thoughts were at their loudest, I could sit in that cafe, sip hot chocolate and listen to the reassuring whir of the machine steaming milk or the hum of people chatting. Hell as other people could not be more wrong. When you're trapped inside a critical mind, other people are heaven. As our public services buckle under the strain of austerity and big tech platforms trade on our most intimate thoughts and feelings, it can feel as though the bonds that tie us together have been fatally severed. But there are pockets of community everywhere, in the cafes, pubs and libraries that serve a purpose far greater than selling pints or lending books. During a recent relapse, I found myself walking towards the cafe on instinct like a homing pigeon, even though I don't live a street away anymore. Many of the faces serving drinks had changed, but I was still greeted with warm smiles. My old friend, the poet, approached me. He asked me if I'd finished my journalism training. I had. I asked him if he was still writing. He was. He handed me an A4 sheet with some prose that opened, This is my message to you, young person, so precious and valuable an individual. It was refreshing to read that I was valuable, when my brain had been stuck on your pathetic for days. When the news cycle is a dystopian parade of murderous autocrats and climate villains, it's easy to forget that there are kind people on every street corner. They probably never know the magnitude of the good that they do. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that Costa Coffee saved my life. For Gen Zer Serena Smith, the results of a Channel 4 study which described her generation as, quotes, young illiberal progressives, makes perfect sense. Back in summer 2020, I wrote a letter to my former school. In the wake of George Floyd's murder at the hands of a police officer, I felt an urge to do something, anything, to protest against systemic racism. Locked down in rural Worcestershire, taken to the streets wasn't an option, so I channelled my frustration into writing this letter. It was a collaborative effort with both current and former students involved in collating years of reports of racism and microaggressions at our school. Some students felt that they had been typecast in school plays. Others were tired of teachers mispronouncing their names. By the time the letter was sent to the headmaster, it had over 600 signatures. Everyone who contributed had a different story to tell, but the overarching message was clear. Racism at our school would no longer be tolerated. According to a recent study by Channel 4, every one of the signatories might be described as a young illiberal progressive, or YIP for short. The broadcaster surveyed the thoughts, feelings and views of young Britons and found us to be more progressive, but also more intolerant than other generations. Only 48% of Gen Z believe that there are only two genders, compared to 68% of over 25s. 
but the broadcaster also found that a quarter of us has very little tolerance for people with beliefs that they disagree with, while nearly half agreed that some people deserve to be cancelled. The national papers reported these findings as if they were contradictory. How can we be progressive but have no patience for people with different views? Alex Mahon, chief executive at Channel 4, called this an obvious paradox. I can understand why older people are confused by Gen Z. The assumption was that the internet would make future generations more open-minded. As the first to grow up exposed to different views on social media and smartphones, we'd be the most flexible generation ever. But I think our progressive intolerance makes perfect sense. Our exposure to social media has made us unprecedentedly invested in progressive change. It has offered us a unique insight into the lives of others, opening our eyes to injustices that may have previously gone unnoticed. We don't have to rely on traditional media to show us what life is like for society's most vulnerable. On social media, marginalised people can tell their own stories to huge audiences. Take Kwejo Twenaboa, the young activist from Mitcham fighting to expose social housing slumlords. How can you not feel passionately about holding rogue landlords to account when Twenaboa posts video after video of the squalid conditions people are forced to live in? Flats infested with mice and cockroaches, rooms ridden with damp and mould. How can you ignore the issue of sexual harassment when the hashtag MeToo has been tweeted millions of times? How can you accept police brutality against black people after watching Derek Chauvin kneel on George Floyd's neck for nine minutes? I recognise the need to talk calmly about controversial issues with the people you're trying to win over, but in my experience, there's little point arguing with those that are unwilling to even listen. In most cases, refusing to engage with hateful people results in them, rightly, fading into obscurity. Case in point, Katie Hopkins' career, which she built by spewing inflammatory views, tanked after she got banned from Twitter, and we stopped tolerating her horrible opinions. That is surely a win for social justice. And isn't intolerance how change happens anyway? All generations have been intolerant of other social issues. Second-wave feminists in the 1960s and 1970s didn't placidly smile and nod and say, I see where you're coming from, in the face of bigoted, backwards-looking misogynists. If past generations had been tolerant of injustice, we'd still be working 16-hour days, six days a week, and sending children up chimneys. The way I see it, my generation isn't setting out to suppress freedom of speech or persecute people for thought crime, a la 1984. We just desperately want to see change on the issues that affect us and no longer entertain the regressive beliefs of people who keep their heads in the sand, just like the young people before us. For Sheila Hancock, the strictures of the stiff upper lip are in danger of being replaced with a new emotional orthodoxy. The latest fashion in makeup is the sad look. It is achieved with red shader around the eyes and under the nose, glistening mascara and little bits of glitter to represent tears. The aim is to look as if you've been or about to cry your eyes out. In other words, you are emotional, the seemingly obligatory present-day state of mind. I have just been listening to a light-hearted Saturday morning radio show where a singer talked about a helpful teacher she once had. Later in the programme, the presenter said the teacher had phoned in to say how proud she was of the singer. There was a pause and the girl said, 
That made me cry. A just about acceptable, if slightly odd, reaction to a compliment. But the presenter then said, it made us all cry. I bet the producer was thrilled to have a studio full of emotional sobbing. Tears in an interview are deemed a huge success. I am now going to suggest something that will drive you insane. Take a note of how many times a day you hear the word emotional, both in the media and real life. I started counting when the Queen died. I myself did pipe a tear, for I was fond of Her Majesty. I was grateful that she clung to life just long enough to make absolutely sure, as her final official duty, that Boris Johnson was seen off. But she was nearly a hundred years old and ailing, so it was not a tragedy when she passed away. Then it started. Ernest TV reporter. Did you feel emotional when you heard the news? Another. The crowds are very emotional. Cut a sobbing woman, furtively checking through her tears if the camera was on her. You must have felt emotional when you queued for five hours to see the coffin. Well, actually, the queue was quite fun. Shocked look from the interviewer. Uh, un until we got to the coffin and then we were all in floods of tears. How has being emotional become obligatory? Since when was it a badge of honour to cry? When I was young, being brave meant hiding your tears through bombing, separation, threat of invasion, hunger and death, the ethos of the stiff upper lip and grin and bear it prevailed. I only saw my mother cry once when Chamberlain declared on the radio that we were at war. It was the second in her lifetime, so the tears were understandable. When did public displays of grief become the norm? Many people suggest the death of Diana was a trigger for us as a nation to howl with grief. We were angry with the Queen for staying in Balmoral to look after the bereaved young princes and not joining in the hysteria. When she and I were young, mourning was greeted solemnly as part of life. We wore black armbands or sewed patches on our coats and closed the curtains to show we were grieving. And if a funeral passed by, we stopped and bowed our heads. Some people cheered and whooped when the Queen's cortege passed. They wanted everyone to see and hear how they felt. That seems the modern way. We see a similar phenomenon at pop concerts where Hearing the music is less important to the audience than showing their loud approval. People have different ways of feeling and expressing bereavement. In a recent radio interview about the Manchester bombing inquiry, Fegan Murray, whose son Martin was killed, abruptly contradicted an interviewer who suggested she must be angry and emotional. She said she couldn't be bothered with pointing fingers or rage because she was too busy looking for a solution to the mistakes that had caused his death and turning a tragedy into something constructive. It is good that we are less inhibited in our expression of mental pain when it occurs, 
that we are in danger of demanding behaviour that conforms into some conventional pattern. We need to find a balance and not be carried by fashion into something demanded of us that is hollow and meaningless. Thank you so much for tuning in to Prospect Lives podcast. Listen out to hear more from our family of writers in February and tune into our regular podcast, The Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday. Next week on The Prospect Podcast, I'll be interviewing Sheila, Tom and Alice about their Christmas plans. So do switch over to our main podcast channel, a link to which is in the show notes for that. And if you enjoyed hearing from our wonderful Lives columnists, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect, which is on the newsstand now in a double issue for the holiday season and beyond. Or go to our website where you can enjoy reading from Ferdinand Mount, Alex Menden, Isabel Hilton and many more. Goodbye and see you next time.